0: Old time music is a way of communicating in Appalachia, a song to welcome rain after drought, or to welcome a new baby, or shoo a cold. Old time music touches on all kinds of moments, and all kinds of people sang it and played it. But early on, while men took their songs on tour, the women often stayed at home.
1: It's taken a long time for us to get past that. It's taken a really long time for women to even feel comfortable singing about things in their life or singing about subject matters that mean something to them. If you can go all the way back to early record producers, even deciding the subject matter of certain songs and what early, early recording musicians who are women would even play.
0: From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, women in old time music. Right on the state line of Virginia and Tennessee is the birthplace of Country Music Museum in Bristol. It's celebrating the work of old time women musicians. Renee Rogers as the museum's head curator and Tony Doman as the grants coordinator. They join me to discuss just a few of the hundreds of women highlighted in their exhibition I've Endured Women in Old-Time Music. Tony and Renee, how did the idea for the exhibit highlighting Women in Old-Time Music come up?
2: Um, It was was actually a colleague that was an old-time musician herself, and she just one day was saying, you know, I think this could be a really good story for us to tell. And we all got really excited and interested in it.
1: And one of the main focal points of this exhibit is to really highlight the hidden histories of women that you might not know the name of. So we all know country music star names like Dolly Parton and Loretta Lynn and we really wanted to focus on those hidden stories of names. People like Ola Belle Reed or the Coon Creek Girls or people like Sarah Ogan Gunning, just to name a few to get our conversation started.
2: The, the other thing is that we ask our Visitors to give us names of people that we should be talking about that we might not have included in the exhibit. And so we have a panel in there that says, Who should we include? And we're working really hard to get those people featured on our website so that we have even more women who are being recognized beyond the exhibit itself.
1: All of the video interviews of the 18 contemporary female musicians who we interviewed for this project, it'll have their full interviews up there. We didn't have enough space, of course, in the exhibit to include everything we wanted to talk about. So that's why we uh, were able to create this website that's going to like Renee said, live beyond and um, further engage more individuals and educate audiences on these incredible women.
0: Let's play a couple of examples just to whet our appetite about this kind of music and maybe start with a woman you mentioned, Ola Bell Reed, singing I've Endured, which is also the name of your exhibit. She's a claw hammer banjo player from North Carolina. Here she is.
1: Endured really sums up so much of what we wanted to say in the exhibit because we're we're talking about the enduring legacy of women in the genre of old-time music. And what better way to do that than pick a pioneer in the genre, Olabel Reed herself, a song that she has written, a song that's been recorded by numerous artists well after her heyday, so to speak. Um, and it, yeah, it just really sums up that legacy of women enduring through so many hardships. I, it always makes me think of Loretta Lynn, um, um, singing about the pill back in the seventies, right? You had even someone like, um, I'm going to mention her name here. Jenny Lou Carson is a great example of a woman who sang with the sweet violet boys who have some very risque subject matter in their songs. So the song itself, I've endured is just a, to me, it's a perfect coalition of just trying to get that feeling of, um, this enduring legacy of, of women in this genre.
0: I saw that Dolly Parton gave you a clothing endorsement for the exhibit. Was Dolly Parton also an old-time musician who had to endure herself?
2: Oh, certainly. When she was first performing, really became known for performance, it was on Porter Wagner's show, and she was hired as the girl singer. Um, there wasn't going to be more than one girl singer. There had been a previous girl singer before her who was leaving, and then Dolly was hired as the next girl singer, and that's what she was known as. But she knew that she had more in her than being that, and so she, she endured that persona and that idea, but she was- went way beyond it. And I just love the fact that she's still tied to that old music, but she's gone so she's really innovated within the music and done so much with it.
0: You can really hear all this in Porter Wagner introducing Dolly Parton to sing for the very first time on his show. Listen to how he introduces her. And she sings a song called Dumb Blonde, which of course is not about being dumb at all. Here it is.
3: One of the finest little gals that I've ever met. Let's give her a great big welcome as she sings a song that she had a big hit on called Dumb Blonde. She ain't no dumb blonde though. Pretty
1: Miss Dolly Parton, come (laughs) out.
2: You can definitely hear like every time he introduces her it's little lady little gal there's de- there's definitely <laughs> yes. a perception there
1: and you can hear how strong she is and who she is in that song right Oh, for sure. Talking about being the girl singer in the band, for example, Sally Ann Forrester was the first woman in bluegrass is what she's known for. She was the first woman to play music in Bill Monroe's band, who Bill Monroe is now known as the father of bluegrass music. Sally Ann Forrester, there were no other women playing in this genre before her, and She, her husband, went away to the war, he was in the band, and Sally Ann stepped in to fill in for her husband's place. So no one in Bluegrass, and all scholars even, really didn't even credit her, Sally Ann Forrester, as being the first woman in Bluegrass. They always just thought of her as just filling in, she's just one of the boys. I just think it's really interesting. You have these these cases where women were doing the work. They were they were part of the band. You also have the Maddox brothers and Rose. Rose Maddox was a female musician, and she played with her brothers in their family band. You have a lot of cases where it wasn't really acceptable for a woman to go out on her own and be on stages, but it's okay if these women are with their family members. It's taken a long time for us to get past that. It's taken a really long time for women to even feel comfortable singing about things in their life. If you can go all the way back to early record producers, even deciding the subject matter of certain songs and what um, radio barn dance stars and early, early recording musicians who are women would even play, you know.
0: You interviewed ballad singer Sheila K. Adams, who said that it was pretty much a dog-eat-dog world for women in the early days of trying to make money singing old-time music. She said Dolly Parton and Loretta Lynn, though, actually teamed up, and that was really rare, and they supported each other. At a time when country music was dominated by men, Loretta Lynn is a favorite of mine because years ago I saw that movie Coal Miner's Daughter about her upbringing. Let's play just a little bit from Loretta Lynn singing Coal Miner's Daughter. Is so great and Dolly Parton, but as you pointed out, the women you've really featured in this exhibit I've endured have been more local for the most part or less known, right?
2: Definitely less known. Um, and you know, we wanted to bring out those hidden heroine stories, we also did talk about iconic and commercial success. Um, stories within female musicians. But yeah, we really wanted people to be able to have those touch points of people they might have heard of, but also to say, oh, I didn't know anything about this woman and she had this amazing achievement or she influenced music in this way.
0: So here is one of those who did feature, Sheila K. Adams, the one who had mentioned Dolly Parton and Loretta Lynn having such a bond. This is Sheila K. Adams singing Black is the Color of My True Love's Hair. And this, she said, is a ballad that the Scottish women brought over to the mountains, emblematic of the kinds of songs they would sing from their homeland while they were often just living in small cabins, raising a lot of children and doing some pretty hard work. It gave them pleasure to sing these.
4: Black is the color of my true love's hair. His face is like sun. With the prettiest face and the neatest hands I love the ground where on he stands so
2: And, you know, Sarah, that's a really great example of one of the things we talk about in the exhibit is those old ballads. You know, they're sung in a very, very distinctive way, you know, usually without instrumentation, just the voice. Um, But the way that they're taught, um, it's called knee to knee, where the teacher is sort of repeating the song back to the student. Um, line by line, and then you're singing it back to them in a way to pass it on. And Sheila Kay is a seventh generation ballad singer. One of her cousins, Donna Rae Norton, who we also feature in the exhibit, is an eighth generation ballad singer. They've been passing those songs down generation after generation after generation, been sort of tied back to those songs from England and Ireland and Scotland. So I love those old ballads and I, I really love the sound of Sheila Kay Adams especially.
0: I want to play something by Elizabeth Cotton who you also feature. This is Elizabeth Cotton playing the guitar and singing Freight Train. And after I've listened, tell me a little bit about her story.
2: great about hearing that version of the song is you know you can tell that that is when Elizabeth Cotton was in her older years um but that song yeah. was written by her when she was only 12 years old um and she got married a few years later at the age of 15 and and gave up music for a long time until her husband had passed and she connected with the Seeger family who encouraged her to to use her talents publicly. Um, and she got a Grammy at the age of 90. So I, I think it's just a really wonderful illustration of sort of another woman who's endured through her life to to go from a 12-year-old writing that song to, to getting a Grammy for the work that she did in folk music and the contributions she made. And again, she's one of those women that has influenced numerous other artists.
0: Here's another piece. This is Sarah Ogan Gunning singing, I am a girl of constant sorrow. I want to play this and then ask you a little bit about this song and her.
4: I am a girl of constant sorrow I've seen trouble all my days I bid farewell to old Kentucky The state where I was my mother, how I hated to leave her. Mother, dear, who now is dead. But
0: I. That is just such a haunting song. On. I've always heard this song played by famous men. I am a man of constant, Sarah.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of us have heard that song, and it became really popular because of that, that one movie, Oh Brother Where Art Thou, which really kicked folk music and country music back into the mainstream back in the early 2000s. But yeah, Sarah Ogan Gunning uh, was a singer-songwriter. She sang labor and work songs from the Kentucky coal fields, and she change the lyrics of that song, like you were just talking about, Man of Constant Sorrow, which was actually written by a man named Emery Arthur back in 1928. So she's flipping the narrative, changed the lyrics, and came out with I Am a Girl of Constant Sorrow in 1936. Her version reflects women's familial
2: responsibilities, which is very different than the male perspective from the original song. So it's talking about the things that she's having to do as a girl of constant sorrow in order to support
1: her family. Women have historically faced so many different challenges that are that are separate from men, right? So you've got gender discrimination, you have bias, you have financial inequalities. I mean, it trickles all the way down into women not even be able, being able to, to sing or, or have a platform to sing and write music about the experiences that they're living.
0: And speaking of women singing about social justice, here is a piece by Florence Reese. She's singing about unions and The song is called, Which Side Are You On? Come all you poor
4: workers good new to you I'll tell How the good old union has come in here to dwell Which side are you on, which side are you on? WE'RE STARTING OUR GOOD BATTLE, WE KNOW WE'RE SURE TO WIN, BECAUSE WE'VE GOT THE GUN THUGS a looking VERY THIN. WHICH SIDE ARE YOU ON? WHICH SIDE ARE YOU ON? IF YOU GO TO HARLAN COUNTY, THERE IS NO NEUTRAL THERE. You'll either be a union man or a thug bar, J.H. Blair. Which side are you on? Which
0: side are you on? Wow, did they you hear her sing the lyric about We've Got the Guns?
2: Yeah, well, and that's based on a, a very specific experience that... And 1931. She was at home. Her husband had gone into hiding because he was a coal mining union organizer and they had armed thugs from the coal company looking for him to do him harm because he was he was organizing for the union. Um, And her house was surrounded by them. And she was so upset and so mad that the story is, is that she rewrote a hymn called Lay the Lily Low to become Which Side Are You On? Be like, are you on the side of the working man and the working person, the working woman, or are you on the side of the unions? And that song has since become used by other social justice and union organizing efforts. And Florence went on to continue to be an activist.
0: And then they're also in this genre, fabulous young performers now like Amethyst Kia. Here is Amethyst Kia singing Polly Ann's Hammer. She is thrilling.
3: you like a-
0: Her singing gives me goosebumps.
2: Oh, yeah. Amethyst is, she's such a distinctive voice. And this is a great example of something we talked about earlier of, again, flipping the narrative of a song. You know, John Henry is a ballad, what we call a native ballad, because it was born in America as opposed to coming over with immigrants from England, Ireland, and Scotland, telling the story of the man John Henry, the steel-driving man. But Amethyst has taken that story and flipped it to tell it from the perspective of his wife, Polly Ann. And Polly Ann, despite the fact that John Henry is basically dies doing that steel driving work, she picks up the hammer and is able to finish the job, showing that she's as strong um, and as persistent as in, and as enduring as any man.
3: When Polly had a small baby on her knees
2: You know, with with Amethyst, you know, she did her degree at East Tennessee State University in the old-time bluegrass and country music studies program. She has a lot of influences from that early old-time music, and you can hear it in the way she plays the banjo and some of the songs she sings and the songs that she writes. But she has innovated and gone beyond that old-time sound. She is doing really interesting things with the music that move beyond what most people would understand old-time music to be, at least. You know, she and Rhiannon Giddens, and Layla McCullough, and um, Allison Russell were songs of our Native daughters. That's where Pollyanna's Hammer um, was first released, was on that album. And there's an, another amazing Um, song by Amethyst on that album that I love called Black Myself, which is exploring her experience as a black woman in music and, and, and just in life. And I think that's the other thing is that a lot of people make assumptions about what old time music, who makes that music and who the music is for. And I think there's so much out there in both the past and in the present that shows that there is a huge amount of diversity and so many different voices within this music that make it much richer than um than people would assume based on the assumptions that have been made around it and and amethyst is definitely a big part of that story
1: black myself is a grammy she earned a grammy nomination for best american roots song and she won song of the year at folk alliance international a few years back for that song so just totally incredible music from a totally incredible person and performer let's play a little
0: bit from her black myself So where do you put the younger generation now in in line with old time music, right? You can you can sing and play and innovate with old time music and still be part of that tradition, right?
2: Oh, definitely. And and I'm going to give a shout out to my my friend here, Tony, she is part of that tradition. She is in a band with her husband, Virginia West. And, you know, she's helping to carry on those traditions, but also to innovate with them. And I think one of the things that we focus on in the exhibit is both that there are young musicians and, you know, contemporary musicians who are older, who are tradition bearers, who are making sure that those traditions are being carried on and remembered and not forgotten. But within that, you have women who have been in the genre for, for longer who are still innovating despite the fact that we might look at them as tradition bearers because they've they've been in the genre for a while. And it, it's really exciting to see that. And there's it's also exciting because old time music is so community focused. It's very participatory. So you have a lot of people who are then sitting down they're having jams, they're at fiddle conventions and banjo competitions, and they're really influencing and listening and hearing each other and playing together and a lot of innovation and preservation comes out of that.
1: Yeah. And thanks for the shout out Renee. (laughs) (laughs) I could could not say it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I also just want to add to that. Um, sometimes, especially in roots music and folk and, and the world that Renee and I both work in, uh, kind of preserving this Appalachian culture, so to speak. A lot of the times I hear from people is that it's a threat of extinction, right? It's going away. If, if no one's going to pick up these traditions and carry them on, it's going to die out. But I, after really honestly, after speaking and, and doing so many interviews for this project with all these incredible women, I don't feel that way anymore because so many people are involved. You know, my colleague is the folklorist Katie clune and she has some
0: apprentices, some young apprentices who are working with people who are master craftspeople, singers, and players. One of them is Elsa Howell apprenticing with Elizabeth LaPrelle. Yes. Tell me about Elizabeth LaPrelle.
1: Oh yeah. She's an incredible example of a young ballad singer who is keeping those traditions alive. Elizabeth focuses on ballads that were once oral traditions that were before recorded music, right? They're storytelling. It's, it's a time whenever you were sitting down and you were listening to someone sing this, maybe it's a very gruesome song then you get to the end and someone's head gets kicked off. <laughs> I mean, women are always the victims in murder ballads.
2: Yeah, it's very rare that, that a man is the victim and the woman's the protagonist. And, and it really makes a big difference when you flip that narrative. And some women have started doing that. We feature a song um, by Molly Tuttle, contemporary young artist called The River Knows, where she sort of tells the story from the woman who's gotten her revenge rather than having um, a man take her life or or do something bad to her.
3: Every day I was so tall Till we were sixteen In a year he towered over me Thought he was
1: And and murder ballads, they're very violent deaths, you know? And I think, you know, women are kind of sick of being the victims. So (laughs) there are a lot of women who are writing, flipping that narrative, writing about a perspective where they come out alive.
2: Even Patsy Montana did it, and that was like in the 1930s and 40s we're talking about. She turned the narrative on one of those songs where the woman was sort of the protagonist of what happened to the men as opposed to the other way around. And that's, to me, that was also unusual because that was happening quite early.
0: Well, Renee Rogers and Tony Doman, thank you for sharing your insights on With Good Reason.
1: Oh, we've really enjoyed it. Thank you, Sarah. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been a really fun conversation. Can't trust. My guests were
0: Renee Rogers and Tony Doman. Catch Tony Doman in the new Sounds of Bristol showcase at the Richmond Folklife Festival, October 13 through 15. This is With
1: Good Reason. We'll be right back.
0: (laughs) Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. Ballad singing is a sophisticated art form. It dates back to the 16th century and is alive and well throughout Appalachia. Elizabeth LaPrell is a banjo player and singer from Cedar Springs, Virginia. She specializes in traditional Appalachian singing. Recently, she participated in the Folklife Apprenticeship Program as a master ballad singer. This week, we're taking you to Rural Retreat, Virginia, where Virginia Humanities Folklife team sat down with Elizabeth to learn more about the significance of ballads.
5: So uh, as a young teen, my dad found an album online called Ballads from the British Tradition. It's part of a series that the Library of Congress put out of Alan Lomax's recordings.
4: Oh, you must answer my questions nine. Sing
1: 99 and 90. Are
5: you're not good. Alan Lomax visited, 99. among many others, Texas Gladden in her home in Salem, Virginia.
4: What is whiter than the mill? Sing 99 and 90 And what is softer than the seal And you are the weaver's bonnie Snow
5: She mainly got recorded maybe the 1930s through the 50s um, In her log cabin And I just wanted to learn all of her songs So um, I got to know Texas Gladden's daughter and granddaughter um, her daughter, Alma, uh, has passed away now, but her granddaughter, Vicky, has these lovely memories of her grandmother, Texas Gladden, singing to her and rocking her in a big squashy armchair. And for me, that connection between these old songs that are like, you know, maybe sitting in an archive or on a compact disc and you can hear this singer al- almost as a relic, right? Then to go... And have the music be the connection that leads you to a real friend. That was such a beautiful moment. And you are the weaver's bunny. And this is like a little tidbit from an interview, right? When Texas Gladden says, "Like I can remember every person that I learned a ballad from, and when I sing the song, that person pops up." So now, when I think about Texas Gladden songs, or I go to sing one, then I can see I have a picture of her home a lot of jam and canned tomatoes like all in jars, you know, sitting in this special shelf that her husband built for her. I know that she liked to collect little knickknacks. I know that she wrote poetry herself. You know, her family kind of liked romance books, like historical romance, which is like, of course. And this, you know, I just think like, that's also why she remembered these songs and made a point of going out to like learn them and then sing them for her friends.
4: What is louder than a horn? Sing 99 and 90. And what is sharper than a thorn? And who is the weaver's bonnie? Ballad singing
5: as a way of entertainment was really mostly happening, this is my guess, really mostly happening inside homes and like in, family or close neighbor groups. Or actually Texas Gladden also talks about, um, she had, when she was young, friends at a factory that she worked with and then she would sing to those people and they would would be like, sing that old love song because I'm having, you know, boy problems.
4: Oh, I'm just a poor girl, my fortune is sad. But I think that
5: that, context of like wanting a song or a story song particularly that like one person knows and can tell really well even the radio and like not even tv but when the radio came into the home that started to kind of lose that okay here we are it's night we're done with our chores for the most part we want to relax but we're not going to sleep for a little while that period of time is kind of filled with other ways to entertain each other now. And so I think it started to sort of filter away as a sort of everyday thing.
0: He
4: works for a living. His money's his own. And if they don't like it, they can leave him alone. And now
5: it's an interesting sort of conundrum to like, do a like stage performance of them because like when people want to go to do entertainment and sit down and listen for like an hour or something it's not necessarily just like solid words from one person for an hour (laughs) listeners kind of i think modern listeners at least like need a, a little bit of break um There's some kind of difference that is between, like, when you're informal and in a living room, and like people are getting up for coffee, maybe whiling away the time with chatting back and forth. Oh, they'll be like, oh, now you do one.
4: Yonder comes a little man riding by, says, Old man, your horse will die. Hop, 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 old rabbit, hop.
5: Which in Ireland actually is still going on. People will gather together for a a night of singing unaccompanied songs, and maybe they're at like a pub, and you can stop and go get a drink, and it's everyone has a song to bring. Hop, 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 old rabbit hop. And um, it, that's very different from a stage performance. That's still sort of a, a quandary for me of like how to put the ballads across because I like them as they are, I like them unaccompanied. How to how to get them across in that different context is really interesting to me.
4: I'll get old Jack and put him on the track. Ride that rabbit to thunder and back. Hop, 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 old rabbit hop.
5: I think, actually, Texas Gladden was thinking about some of the same things um, because she talks in these interviews about, like, how her friends would be like, sing me this old love song, you know, sing me one of these sad love songs. That's what her audience at the time was in the mood for. And then she talks about how she, well, she, you know, she raised nine children. Um, so she talks later to Alan Lomax about like, I've been singing lullabies. I haven't sung these old ballad songs in, in years now. So it changes. Yeah. Go to
4: sleep, go to sleep, go to sleep, you little baby. When you wake, have some cake and ride them pretty little horses. A black and a bay, a sorrel and a gray, a whole heap of little horses. A black and a bay, a sorrel and a gray, a whole heap of little horses. A little
5: horses. I think there is an idea kind of floating around that ballad singing is a women's art, and yet there's lots of male singers. And so I've wondered this many times, like were more women doing it? Or were more women at home when collectors stopped by because they were just at home more? Did more women choose singing or tend to practice singing more in the home because in Appalachia, for a lot of that period when the songs were getting collected, there was actually quite a stigma about instrumental music, especially the fiddle, and how sinful it was, and that the times you would go out to play fiddle would be for sinful dances where people were dancing. Um, and banjo, similarly, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So women were discouraged, I think, from playing that instrumental music. Um, I'm really interested in women's stories. Um, I'm interested in what women's lives were like, especially from the times that these songs were being collected. That's just part of what I've chosen, to have an opportunity to teach more and, like, what to pass on. That's been partly just a feminist practice, praxis kind of choice for me.
4: There was a night and a lady gay. She sent them away to a far country to learn their grammar As to why they're important, why are ballads
5: important? <sighs> Just because they're good art is my best, <laughs> you know, they and they've been People have been like hearing them and thinking, wow, that's really cool. I I hope that I can remember this and like either writing it down or or recording it or setting it down um, in some way for, for hundreds of years now. It's like some of the oldest poetry actually in modern English that's out there. These songs really belong to everyone. That's one of the beautiful things about them. It has made so many journeys through time and space
4: was on a cold, cold Christmas night, when
0: Elizabeth Laprell is a banjo player and singer who specializes in Appalachian singing. She'll share more of her songs and stories at the Richmond Folk Festival coming up October 13 through 15. After finishing law school, my next guest, Jane Henderson, was looking for a way to pay off her student loans, so she called her dad, renowned guitar maker Wayne Henderson, and asked if she could help him make guitars. And Jane never went back to the courtroom. She's a full-time luthier in Asheville, North Carolina, and one of the few women luthiers in the world. I
6: have a little shop here uh, in Asheville, North Carolina. It's it's my basement. Um, We built a shop and then put a little house on top of it. You know, I have a little bench. It's really not much. I've got a bench and a couple of pretty cool, like, saw-stop machines that I'm kind of proud of. Every year, my dad, for Christmas, will give me a new machine, you know, but I'm, I'm full up at this point. I've got them all.
0: What mountains are near you?
6: Um, just Appalachian mountains. We've got Mount Mitchell, which is one of the, lar- isn't it the largest or is it Mount Rogers? The ones I'm closest to are, are one of the largest on the East coast, but yeah, Appalachian mountains run from here up to rugby Virginia where my dad lives
0: and beyond. You make beautiful acoustic guitars and ukuleles. What sorts in particular?
6: So my dad Wayne Henderson, he's pretty well known. He's been obsessed with Martins for his whole life. Pre-war 30s, early 40s Martins are just the Holy Grail. Dreadnoughts, which aren't really my scene, but I love the traditional aesthetic of an old Martin. And so I typically will do somewhat copies of that style, but I I always put my own aesthetic on there. Um, but I love the way they sound, and my dad taught me how to to manipulate the wood in, in a manner that, that would make them sound the best.
0: I've always wondered what is entailed with manipulating the wood to give it that resonance. At first, you don't have anything to
6: go on but your senses. But after a while, you kind of feel the weight. You can see if a piece of wood is going to sound good. You can sort of tell. But the best way is to tap on it and and feel and hear how resonant it's going to be. And you can do that with any thickness. But if you, if you take a piece of red spruce, for instance, and hang it just right between your fingers and tap on it, it'll make this long hum that'll tell you, you know, how well it's going to sound. You're like, oh, I know that that piece of wood wants to sing. It wants to be an instrument. It can't wait.
0: A lot of luthiers only use exotic woods, mm-hmm. but you take a different approach. Tell me about woods you've used. I do indeed take a different approach. I, if I can use
6: sustainable wood, local materials, materials that have been thoughtfully harvested, or if it's been reclaimed, I'm happy to use it. But I just I have the skills to manipulate the wood to make this instrument sound Exactly, you know, how it should and and give that wood the best tone it can. But I also have this love of the environment and love of of preserving our natural world. So I don't want to promote cutting down exotics and, you know, having a huge carbon footprint and decimating uh, rainforests. Yes, trees do grow back, but we have to plant them, and it takes a long time. So we need to be really cognizant of what we're cutting down and where and when. What sort of local woods work for you? Walnut is probably one of my absolute favorites, black walnut. I love red and white oak I've used them, and they make surprisingly good instruments
0: I don't know whether it's for the body or the top, but you've even used the wood sassafras i have someone brought
6: or i guess it was just, it was a big hunk of sassafras they, i think i got it actually I got it from a friend in um coal country virginia sassafras shouldn't grow as large as it did but they had this board and i it was large enough to make a soprano ukulele and i made the whole body out of it top back sides it was a special instrument it smelled really good it smelled like root beer
0: <laughs> i love sassafras
6: it sounded incredible like you know but i love using things like that
0: how does somebody get on the list to get a jane henderson guitar or ukulele uh, the
6: easiest way is to just get in touch with me. Send me an email. I have a, a list of interested people. You know, some people wait several years. I have maybe a three or four year wait list. If the folks waiting longer get in touch with me every December, I open my books for that following year. So if you want, a, you know, an instrument, in 24. Get in touch with me this December. And if no one's been waiting longer, then, you know, I I give preference to whoever's waited the longest, but I have 10 slots.
0: You're known for so many things, but one of them is your artistry with the inlay on these instruments. Tell me about your joy in doing the inlay. I don't know. I'm a girl. I like
6: sparkly things, number one, but mostly I just, (laughs) my mom um, is an incredible artist. Uh, My dad's an incredible artist, obviously, too. But that itch to create manifests itself in, in the inlay and in the aesthetics of the, I love doing sunburst color. But the inlay I like because it doesn't affect the sound. It's just a little extra something that makes it... Really special for a specific person. Do people ask for different patterns? Oh yeah, all. The, I mean, and that's that's another way that I get to know people. I love being able to hear people's stories. So I've inlaid my friend's goat, Dee Dee. Um, one of her first goats. She, <laughs> she and her husband were very high powered political folks in uh, Chicago, and they moved to the middle of nowhere near my dad to be goat farmers. They just kind of like, well, we're done with that. We're going to go do this now. (laughs) And her first goat um, is named Dee Dee. And so I I inlaid Dee Dee on on the back of her peghead. And I also did an inlay of kudzu for her. I made her a ukulele because goats love to eat kudzu. (laughs) Um, And then I've done my friends, I've done, oh, I've done so many animals and the wood on my, my ukulele came from my friend, Paul, who was the surgeon on Kauai. (laughs) So I had to keep it.
0: Oh, you have a wood
6: connection on Kauai. I have several wood connections in Hawaii. Um, I made friends with a fellow, he was the surgeon on Kauai he emailed me and said, hey, I'm, I'm an amateur ukulele builder. I, if I paid you to come out, would you teach me inlay? You know, you could stay for a week and, and just teach for a couple of days. And I've got ukulele builder friends. Would you be willing to come out if, if I gave you a place to stay and flew you out here? And I was like, well, what kind of trick question is that? So uh, we did.
1: <laughs> Are um, you kidding?
6: We came out and I made friends. He And I traded him red spruce um, and some maple and just things that I have here. And he traded me this insane, beautiful Koa. But he reminds me when I went out I went to Maui to teach Inlay again and met even more of these incredible local native Hawaiian guys. It was just, it was amazing. Even though it's a teeny tiny island in the middle of the Pacific, it it's so similar to how my dad grew up. They grew up so similarly. You know, their moms made their own shirts. My granny used flour and corn sacks and Edmund's mom used rice sacks, you know, and they had their the outside to entertain themselves. They both played in the same type of creeks and played with the same gang of kids. And I loved that. I loved feeling so connected when I was there.
0: I also love how you came to be in this profession. You didn't start out with a goal of becoming a luthier. <laughs> You were in Vermont training to be a lawyer. Yep. I absolutely had no plan of this. I got a degree in environmental
6: law and policy um, from Vermont Law School and decided those loans cost a lot of money. And so I was like, dang, how do I pay this back? Well, my dad's guitars sell for a lot on eBay. Maybe I could just, hey, daddy, can I make one and sell it on eBay? He was like, you know, sure, I'll give you, I'll give you all the nice stuff, but you have to come in here to the shop and, and work on it every single day. You know, I'm not going to do it for you. You have to do it. And I thought that that would be hard work and unpleasant, but it was absolutely the best time I've ever had.
0: How did that first guitar you made with him turn out? What uh, did it sell for on eBay? The first guitar sold for 25,000. Oh my gosh.
6: I paid really? for, I made another one and out of koa. Um, which is one of my favorite woods. It's Hawaii. It's from, it only grows in Hawaii. That one brought 20. And I used that to pay for my rent for my AmeriCorps oh. year. And then my the one that I, with my name, the very first one with my name, I didn't eBay that. I just, you know, told folks, but it was 5,000 that was just with my name, my first
0: guitar. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. And you were hooked.
6: Yeah. There were so many things that made me feel that I couldn't do this. But my husband made me feel that I could, which I really appreciated.
0: How many women luthiers are there?
6: Not many. I have several close friends who are luthiers, but again, not many. And I've connected with most of them on Facebook or
0: uh, social media, Instagram, Instagram. It feels like the women artists and the women museums ought to be coming to the women luthiers, right? Yeah, I would love that. There are 60
6: members of my Lady Luthiers group, and a lot of them that's all over the world. I've talked to one in Ireland. My friend Heidi is in Prince Edward Island. She lives up Nova Scotia area. Kathy Wingert lives in California. She's incredible. Linda Manzer and Peggy White are up in Canada. Those are sort of the bigger ones. It's a small
0: club of us. I love that. What are you working on now?
6: Right now, I have two ukuleles. Just um, on Friday, I shipped a soprano ukulele made out of walnut, full body walnut, which was, oh, it sounded so good. It was one of my favorites. It's always sad. I love them. You know, I get to know these beings as I'm working on them and (laughs) they, you know, they say their first words with me and I just get so excited (laughs) to to send them to their people but i also am am sad as well because i i love them each each one individually is a special being with a soul and a and a voice of its own and i love being able to provide that for people but i also some days I'm like oh <laughs> just maybe maybe you could stay a little bit longer
0: well jane henderson i so admire your passion your spirit your aesthetic Thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason.
6: Thank you so much. It was really, really nice um, to
0: chat. Jane Henderson is a luthier based in Asheville, North Carolina. Support for this episode of With Good Reason comes from the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation. This is a charitable trust created by the will of acclaimed 20th century artist, Joseph Cornell that honors the memory of the artist and his younger brother, Robert. This episode was produced in partnership with Katie Kloon and the Folklife Program at Virginia Humanities. The second Resonate Podcast Festival in Richmond, Virginia takes place November 3rd and 4th, featuring Vivian Lee of 99% Invisible and Verilyn Williams of NPR's Code Switch, among others. For tickets, visit ResonatePodFest.com. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Aviva Castro and Liliana Bukowski are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast or to comment, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.